Warning, this episode contains graphic details of violence towards young children. I intend to recount the story as tactfully and respectfully to the victim as possible. However, if you are sensitive to these topics, this might be an episode you may want to skip. Listener discretion is advised. The grieving process. How do human beings do it? How are we supposed to do it? I suppose we've all watched and listened to enough true crime that it's been seared into our brains that there is no right or wrong way to grieve. We catch ourselves judging how we see people grieve and are told time and time again that everybody grieves differently. And a certain Florida mom comes to mind when I think of questionable grieving practices. When her almost three-year-old darling little baby girl supposedly went missing and mom was out grieving at the club, grieving at the bar, grieving at the tattoo parlor, grieving at the wet t-shirt contest, grieving at the fake job. You all know who I'm talking about, right? Everyone grieves differently, right? Well, as much as we like to wag our fingers at you-know-who about living it up at the club while knowing her daughter is dead, it is true that the grieving process is a highly individual experience, and there is no set standard when it comes to grief. But if your kid dies, and you're out partying and clubbing that weekend, I'm going to judge you. Anyway, how each of us grieves depends on a number of factors that need to be taken into consideration. Things such as your individual personality traits, the style in which you cope, your life experiences, your faith, and how significant the loss is to you. Inevitably, the process does take time. As the healing process is gradual and it's not something that can be forced or hurried. We haven't assigned a timetable for grieving. For some, it may take a few weeks or a few months to begin to feel better over a loss. For others, the process may take years. Is it possible to never begin to feel better after suffering the loss of a loved one? Can a person be trapped in a bottomless chasm of sadness and grief for the rest of their lives? Some things in life aren't meant to be grieved. Some things aren't meant to happen. Those things don't even have a definition in our language. For example, when a husband loses a wife, he's a widow. When a wife loses a husband, she's a widower. When a child loses his or her parents, he or she is an orphan. But what is it we call a parent who loses a child? We don't. We don't have a word for that. And the reason is, it's not the natural order of things. Thus, a label has never really been assigned to it. Unfortunately for us, this nameless thing does happen. Parents grieving the loss of their children for one reason or another. I'm going to introduce you to a mom whose child was taken from her much, much too soon. In this episode of California Dreaming, the tale of superheroes and sunflowers. In the United States, there are four leading causes of death in children under the age of 10. Unintentional injuries or accidents, congenital anomalies or birth defects, malignant neoplasms or some type of cancer, and homicide. And if the child is under the age of four, homicide bumps up one ahead of cancer, making it the third leading cause of death in children ages one through four. Homicide of a child. I can hardly think of a more despicable crime. How does this happen? How are our children more likely to die by the hands of another human being than by cancer or heart disease or respiratory distress? Most children who are victims of homicide are killed by their parents. However, there are several other circumstances which result in the death of a child. They may be killed because of maltreatment in a caregiving situation. Some are killed by other children. Some are killed in multiple victim family homicide situations. Some are killed by complete strangers. And then there are those who are abducted and subsequently killed 
And that's what's part of today's focus of this episode. The abduction, assault, and murder of a five-year-old girl. The other part of the story is going to be about this little girl's mom and her call to action following the death of her child. As difficult as this may be for you and for me to get through, it's a story that not only needs to be told, it's a story that needs to never be forgotten. This is the kind of story that's going to make you keep your children close to you. The kind of story that reminds you to never take your eyes off your children, not even for a second. The kind of story that's going to get you hugging your babies a little tighter tonight. When we are done, however, we're going to have the chance to get to know how to do what you and I might think is impossible. To rise up from the grief, taking the worst possible thing that you could ever imagine happening to you in your life, and somehow, some way, picking yourself up from that lowest point, a place you could not even envision happening to you in your worst nightmares, and decide that this thing is not going to end you. You are going to take this nightmare and use it as your personal call to action to devote your life to making sure your child's life wasn't stolen from this world in vain. You are going to make it your mission to make sure you do everything in your power to try and make sure this never happens to any child ever again. I want to tell you about Erin Runyon. She is a remarkable woman. She is this woman on a mission, a mission that began 15 years ago on July 15, 2002. Her mission is simple yet essential as to how and why this became a central goal that Erin has dedicated her life to, to ensure that every child is educated about personal safety, to working towards heightening awareness about potential dangers and ways to resist and or escape inappropriate behaviors and violence. To understand how and why Erin embarked upon this mission in life is to understand what happened to her daughter, Samantha. It's hard for me to even know where to start when it comes to telling you about Samantha. I didn't know her, I only know of her, and how her story hit hard in 2002 when I was the mom of a three-year-old daughter living just a little more than six miles away from where Samantha lived when all of this happened. I'm not even going to attempt to put into words how enchanting Samantha's photographs that I saw in the news were. That smile, those big eyes, and her curly hair. When you see her, the image is guaranteed to be burned into your memory forever. Samantha Bree Runyon was born July 26, 1996 in Boston, Massachusetts to parents Aaron Runyon and Derek Jackson. By 2002, they were residents of Stanton, California, located on the western side of Orange County. Samantha loved creating artwork. She loved to draw. In one of her drawings, there is a little girl and a dog standing by a house that has a heart-shaped window. Her handwritten caption says, to my great family, be brave. I love my family a lot more than anybody in the whole world. And I thank everything you give me. A lot of people like me. She was very artistic and so very talented. She loved dancing. She wanted to be a dancer. She was a little girl that had a whole lot of talent so much potential already blossoming in the five-year-old. She loved princesses, but she also loved superheroes, and she especially loved sunflowers. Those were her favorites. In these short five, almost six years, these would be the only favorite things Samantha would ever come to know. She would never see the age of six. Eleven more days, and she would have, but it was not to be. It's heartbreaking to know that the world would never be blessed with the chance to have Samantha in it. 
or to know who she would become in life, beyond when we first heard her name, that summer day back in the July of 2002, when her photo flashed across our television screens, and we all came to learn of her, to know her, to hear her name, and to see who she was, and we vigilantly kept our eyes on the news to see what was to happen. On Monday, July 15, 2002, at approximately 7 p.m., Samantha was in her front yard playing a board game with a friend, Sarah Ahn, when they saw a green car pass by. A few minutes later, the green car turned around and came back. A stranger got out of the car and asked the girls if they had seen his lost puppy. Sarah shied away from the man asking questions, but Samantha, likely eager to want to help as children sometimes are, talked to him. She was an animal lover. She even had a cat of her own. So naturally she was interested in what the stranger was saying. She asked him how big his dog was, but he never answered. Instead, he grabbed Samantha, and as he was forcing her into his car, she screamed to Sarah to help her, to tell her grandma, kicking and screaming, struggling to get away from him. The man drove away, taking Samantha with him. Sarah immediately alerted Samantha's mother as to what had just happened. Despite the fact that Sarah was very young, she was able to give exceptional details as to the kidnapper's appearance, as well as the car he was driving, a green car with an H on it. Even adults have difficulties recounting such details under these types of alarming, distressing events, but Sarah did just that. She did it for her friend. Her friend she witnessed get snatched up and stolen from her that day. Her recall would play an important role in some years to come when it came time to seek justice for Samantha. Orange County's top cop, former Sheriff Mike Corona, hit the ground running as soon as the news hit that Samantha had been abducted. He made the media rounds, including an appearance on CNN's Larry King Live in an effort to bring attention to Samantha's kidnapping. He offered up a reward of $50,000 for information regarding her disappearance. He was determined to bring her home to her family before her sixth birthday, which was 10 days away on July 26th. He went on to say that authorities were doing everything in their power to bring her home to her mother and he guaranteed it. He pleaded for the public's help in helping to find Samantha and to help identify her abductor. He wanted any potential witnesses to come forward. He wanted all leads to be phoned in. He wanted any possible vehicles matching Sarah's description to be made known to law enforcement. Time, of course, was of the essence. He made his plea for information, and he wanted it as soon as possible. More than 150 sheriff's deputies and 30 FBI agents were on the case. A nationwide alert was issued, as well as the authorities at the U.S.-Mexico border were also alerted because of the proximity to the international border. The best information early in the case came from Samantha's six-year-old playmate and best friend who witnessed the abduction, Sarah. She was able to give a very detailed description of the man who took Samantha, including all those details about his car. Based on what Sarah was able to recall about the man's appearance, authorities were able to make a composite sketch of the abductor. Police were also immediately on the lookout for the green car with the letter H and chrome wheels. They were looking for a Hispanic man between the ages of 25 and 40 with a mustache and slicked back black hair. When she was grabbed, Samantha made quite the commotion with her screams for help, so much so that neighbors from a distance away were alerted to the disturbance and were also witnesses to the little girl being forced into a green car. Police immediately conducted a search of the neighborhood, utilizing helicopters and bloodhounds, but nothing was found. The man in the green car had vanished, along with Samantha. The investigation also encompassed the canvassing of local nearby businesses for any surveillance cameras and equipment that might have captured any images of the car or any other kind of useful information 
Law enforcement also checked through the databases of probation and parole records for the area, as well as the state's sex offender registry for suspects that might be residing nearby, but also this was all to no avail. No subjects drew any red flags. Law enforcement also contacted Samantha's father, who lived out of state at the time. Everyone needed to be talked to about this. They had no idea who could have done this. They didn't know if this was some sort of random abduction or if this was something that had required some planning. Everyone needed to be looked at. Samantha needed to be found. A side note to Samantha's abduction. This occurred one month after the abduction of Salt Lake City child, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart. She too was kidnapped from her home, from inside her bedroom actually, but luckily she was rescued nine months later. At the time Samantha went missing, the Smart family were still searching for their missing child and reached out to Samantha's family, offering condolences and any kind of help they could offer. They felt each other's pain and they shared it with one another. The outpouring of love and support Hope and prayers was far-reaching for the Runyon family. This wasn't just a crime against Samantha. This was a crime against the entire community, not just of Stanton, not just of Orange County, but the entire state of California. This abduction was so brazen. It happened so fast. Taken right from the front yard while playing with a friend, vanished in the blink of an eye and we all knew myself included that this could have happened to any one of us the entire community was ready to step up and do anything and everything humanly possible to find samantha and bring her home but it was not to be the following day tuesday july 16th a 911 call came in around 3.15 p.m. from a very shaken and distressed man. He and a friend were on the Ortega Highway on the riverside section of the Cleveland National Forest near a popular hang gliding launching area when they spotted a little girl's body. He told the 911 operator he was very scared. His voice was quivering and he explained that he had just spotted a dead body along the highway. He told the operator the location as best he could as he was trying to make his way up to his house so he could call from the landline since cell service is spotty in the mountains. He goes on to tell 911 that he thinks the body is that of a baby and it might just be that little girl that everyone's been seeing on the news but he can't be sure. He explains that they saw the body, panicked and drove away, calling 911. He said he would wait by the gate of his house so that he could go back with authorities and show them where lies the body that he and his friend discovered. Samantha was left on this hillside, overlooking the rugged hills of the eastern side of the Santa Ana Mountains. A breathtaking view considering the tragedy that had befallen in this place. One can only take solace in hoping that when Samantha left this world, she looked to the sky and soared away peacefully so this nightmare on earth could be over for her. The man that did this to Samantha, the man who left her there naked, battered, violated, strangled, and left in plain view as if to show off his handiwork, did not just leave her behind he left something else behind as well. Something he was likely to have no idea would be a part of his undoing. You see, Samantha, she was not going down without a fight. She fought this man with all she could. She screamed, she hit, she kicked, and most important of all, she scratched. She scratched this man's face in her final moments, she took with her a piece of that man that did this to her that would eventually be discovered underneath her little fingernails, his DNA embedded in there. 
Later, this would be used as part of the most damning evidence against this man. Samantha may not have been able to save her own life fighting with him, but getting his identifying markers underneath her nails was going to help ensure that he would never have the chance to do this to another child ever again. Sheriff Corona had a message for the man who abducted, assaulted, and strangled Samantha to death. I would call it more of a warning. Do not eat. Do not sleep. Because he would be caught. Sheriff Corona wanted to make sure this predator knew that he would not be able to go anywhere or do anything without looking over his shoulder. Speaking directly to the murderer, he made sure to make it clear that he was not joking, that he was dead serious. Samantha was everybody's little girl, and the sheriff was dubbed America's sheriff. And he was on a mission to catch this person who did that to Samantha and make sure that justice gets served. Tips from the public began to pour in. However, one tip in particular came in on July 18th, which led investigators to an individual named Alejandro Avila. Who exactly was this person, and what was his connection to this case? Well, it just so happens that this person of interest knew somebody who resided in the same condominium complex that Samantha lived in. He knew the area well. He knew the building well. He knew the ins and outs of the neighborhood. He was comfortable just being in the area. So what business did this man have at the complex? His girlfriend at the time, her daughter lived there part-time with her father. He'd been there several times picking her up and dropping her off. And it also just so happens that this child had been the primary target of his sexual molestation activity, along with two other girls who were children of other acquaintances of his. He was charged in these cases, but subsequently acquitted in all three about a year prior to his abducting and murdering Samantha. It had been speculated that he had returned to the complex where Samantha lived to possibly try to find the girl that he had previously molested. But it's possible he returned in search of any random child to abduct. Nobody really knows for certain. What is certain is he was there looking for his next victim. While investigating this viable tip, investigators also came to discover, along with his previous molestation trials and acquittals, he, who lived with his mother and sister, arrived home at a very late hour the night Samantha was abducted and refused to account for his whereabouts. As this circumstantial evidence was mounting, police decided to go ahead and take the suspect into custody on suspicion of kidnapping and killing Samantha. They also seized three vehicles from the family, a green Ford Thunderbird, a white Buick Century, and a green Nissan. They also took some of his clothing and a computer. Sheriff Corona stated in a subsequent news conference that he was 100% certain that they got the right man. There was absolutely zero doubt that he was the one that did this to Samantha. Law enforcement working in tandem with the community was invaluable in bringing this man into custody quickly. The fear in the community was palpable and the urgency to find this man before he would have the chance to do this again was at the top of everyone's priority list. Police had as many boots on the ground as they could spare. Members of the community were vigilant. The manner in which this suspect conducted himself, grabbing Samantha in broad daylight and leaving her in the way that he did, was interpreted as his way of showing off what he had done as well as a challenge to law enforcement to catch him if they could. This man was sloppy. He left behind mountains of forensic evidence connecting him to the crime. So as far as law enforcement was concerned, this man was never gonna have the chance to do this to another child. He was gonna be locked away pretty much for the rest of his life, if not worse. It didn't take very long for more damning evidence to mount against Samantha's killer. 
His computer was found to have contained material related to child pornography. It was also discovered that he had made phone calls from his cell phone from the neighborhood in which Samantha resided the day she was abducted. His bank card was also used to rent a motel room on the same day as the abduction as well. It is surmised that Samantha was kept alive for several hours after the kidnapping and was ultimately killed in that motel room. His shoe prints and tire tracks were identified at the scene where Samantha was found the day after her abduction. I had previously mentioned his DNA was embedded under her fingernails as well, a result of having scratched at his face. Well, his DNA was also discovered on her body, further linking him to the crime. There was DNA in one other place, in that Thunderbird police seized, the green one that Sarah saw drive off with her best friend. There was DNA in there too. Samantha's DNA, found on the armrest of the car, left there by her tears. She cried those tears into that armrest. I can't even imagine the fear she felt in the moment those little droplets fell from her cheeks. Samantha's killer was formally charged on July 23, 2002 with kidnapping, two counts of sexual assault, and capital murder. He was facing the death penalty. His trial would begin almost three years later in March of 2005. The evidence was damning, no doubt, but there was one aspect of this trial that was quite exceptional. The group of young girls who would come to court and face this man charged with killing Samantha. Sarah Ahn, nine years old by the time of the trial, and the three girls the defendant had previously been charged with molesting were also called to testify. I was a bit surprised to find out that these girls' testimony was allowed in Samantha's trial as we've heard so many times before about testimony that might prejudice a jury, it is often not allowed. Things such as previous convictions or similar crimes in the past unrelated to the case at hand. However, these girls' testimony was deemed admissible by the judge, and the jury would hear their stories of what this defendant had done to them. Certainly powerful testimony in favor of the prosecution. To be fair, the judge let it be known that the defendant was acquitted of these charges, but charged and tried nonetheless. And Sarah Ahn, Samantha's best friend. Little Sarah would take the stand and testify for her friend. How incredible of a moment in court was that when the then nine-year-old Sarah took the witness stand after the lunch break that day and readied herself to tell this court what she remembered about the day her friend was abducted. There was no fear in Sarah when she spoke to the court. She was there to be strong for her friend. She knew she needed to do this for her. So, clutching a teddy bear, she told the jury that the man who grabbed Samantha drove past them once before turning around and coming back. She said he got out of the car and asked if they had seen a little puppy. That's when he grabbed her friend and forced her into his car. She said, he throwed her in the car, and I think she said something like help or something like that. And then she was in the car, and she just looked at me. There were audible gasps coming from the jurors when Sarah made this statement. The defense attorney tried to point out some of the discrepancies of Sarah's statements to the police officers, some of which included that the defendant wasn't wearing glasses when he actually was, and that he had an H on his car when it didn't. During the questioning about her discrepancies, all Sarah said was she was telling the police the truth. I don't think the defense attorney was gaining much ground in poking holes in the testimony of this nine-year-old. The prosecutor hit back stating that it didn't matter if she saw a red Cadillac and not a green car with an H. Samantha's DNA was in the car. After nine hours of deliberations, the jury convicted the defendant on all charges. In a separate phase of the trial, he was ultimately sentenced to death. He is currently on death row 
in San Quentin State Prison. It's worth mentioning that this man never took responsibility for Samantha's murder. He never admitted to what he had done, and to this day, he continues to deny that he had anything to do with her death. This remains one of the most frustrating aspects of this whole ordeal for Samantha's mom, for him to have never been able to look at her and admit what he had done and at least try to apologize. At the reading of the verdict, Samantha's mom, seated in the front row, wept. Some of the jurors wept as well. Many of us who lived the story in real time as it was happening shed tears for Samantha. We felt the fear with the random nature of the abduction. We felt that Samantha could have been our child playing outside on any given summer evening. We felt the anxiety in those hours following the abduction hoping and praying she would be found safe. We felt the tremendous sadness and grief when she wasn't found safe. We felt the anger and disgust when we saw the face of the man who did this atrocity flash across our television screens five days later. We couldn't help but stare at his abhorrent mugshot, relieved that he was off the streets yet, hoping for the same if not worse to now happen to him in prison. All of Southern California grieved for the loss of Samantha in a way that's held with me personally over the last decade and a half since all this happened. Over 4,000 people attended Samantha's funeral service on July 25, 2002. Thousands of mourners packed the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California to say goodbye to Samantha the child we all came to know through local news reports of her abduction and murder. The cathedral was filled to capacity with 3,000 people of all ages and backgrounds who came from all throughout Southern California. More than a thousand others gathered outside and listened on speakers. As Samantha's mom, Erin, would describe it, it was surreal. I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to talk to Erin Runyon this week over the phone. I got very emotional speaking to her, especially when I explained where I was at in July of 2002 when all of this happened and how it devastated me along with the rest of Southern California. And as I extended my condolences through my broken voice, Erin was as gracious as you can imagine, ironically trying to make me feel better. I'm going to play some of the audio of our conversation. However, I'm only going to play her answers to my questions for the most part, because I'm not the greatest interviewer. And I hope you're able to hear the things that she has to say, as the audio is a little bit difficult at times. And knowing the trauma and loss she suffered, I found it uplifting to hear her speak so eloquently and fondly of Samantha, Sarah, the funeral services, the community, law enforcement, changes in legislation, and her foundation dedicated to the memory of Samantha, the Joyful Child Foundation. I've been um, looking online and searching and trying to find stuff about Samantha, but there isn't mm. a whole lot because, you know, her life was very short. So could you, exactly. you tell me some of your memories of her and what she was like and what some of her favorite things were? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I, when Samantha was taken, I felt like that was kind of my my job, really, was to make her real for people. Um, you know, if you just see the pictures, you don't, you don't know who she was. Um, but Samantha was a super bright little girl. She was um, extremely thoughtful, um, especially, you know, later... My, I had other children. I came to know lots of other children. Just um, from only being five years old, the, the depth of the conversations that we would have and her understanding of um, kind of just her role in the world and um, the questions she would ask was pretty phenomenal. Um, she loved science. Um, she loved puffer fish. She um, there used to be a, a Disney show. I don't even I don't know if it's still on. Um, but uh, it was about a little boy who would go on these kind of science adventures and animated, but that was her favorite show. Um, 
and she was very crafty. I, I joked that she, she loved tape and glue the way that her big sister loved chocolate. Um, she was always creating something. She would take uh, pipe cleaners and make, you know, kind of makeshift dream catchers all the time. They were everywhere. They were tied to doorknobs and everything, everything was decorated. you guys came to move to Orange County after you remarried? Um, no, I came to Orange County after I um, left Massachusetts, and then I um, moved in with my grandmother and my mom. Um, with Samantha at the time was only 10 months old, um, and my uh, we were taking care of my grandmother. She was um, on this care. And um, after she passed, we moved back to Orange County. So I had been in Orange County um, my senior year before college. Um, my senior year of high school, I was in Orange County and then moved away for college and then basically came back after. Oh, okay. Um, and, yeah, so I already I, I moved back here and then met my husband and we quickly fell in love and um, we were engaged and looking to really get our financial issues in order so that we could buy a house and everything um, before moving forward. But we, mm. we got married shortly after Samantha's abduction. Okay. So you're a native of Southern California? I am. I, I, yes. I was born at UCLA Hospital. I grew up in Thousand Oaks. Um, my grandfather actually started the first uh, Canal Valley newspaper for the Canal Valley in um, Thousand Oaks. Oh, cool. And then... Yeah, when I was about nine, we moved to Hollywood and kind of just slowly moved our way south. Yeah. <laughs> so by right. the time I was in high school, I was in Orange County. I was going to say, because online it says that Samantha's from Massachusetts. Yes, she was born in Massachusetts, right. um, okay. but we moved to, um, she was two years old when we moved back to California. Okay, got it. Um, there's one yeah, question. Bio, did you have a chance to look over the questions that I emailed? Yes, I did. Okay, there yes. was one that I left off, and I'm hoping you're okay if I ask about it. The girl that of course. that Samantha was with, Sarah, do you still talk to her? I haven't talked to her in a while, um, but yes, I do talk to her. Um, she's doing very well. You know, she's in college now. Um, and on July 26th, Samantha would be turning 21 years old, so um, it's kind of crazy. But, yeah, when Sarah was in high school, she actually participated in our um, brave volunteer training and uh, volunteered with a few workshops, and we did one at her elementary school, which was really special for her. Um, she's an amazing young woman. Right, yeah. I, I, I am not surprised, but she is an amazing young woman. <laughs> right. From what I've seen, um, reading... Uh, what happened in court and her testimony, I was just completely blown away. 
just amazed. Yeah. I can't imagine you know, I'm, what I'm, that was like for her. What, right? Yeah. Absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm literally writing a memoir right now. And just today I was writing about the trial experience. And I, I was writing about how amazing it was to see this little girl who, she was six years old when Samantha was taken, but she was nine years old. You know, in the witness stand, having to talk about what happened to her best friend, and um, her strength was incredible. Like she, she had no hesitation. She was confident. She was clear. She, uh, you, you had no doubt that, that she remembered every single moment in vivid detail. And um, and at the same time, as she was talking, there was there was no fear. She. You could tell it was a combination of sadness and anger, but she was going to do what she needed to do for her friend. And, yeah, she's pretty special. That's kind of the, the impression I got from reading the transcripts of her testimony, that she needed to do this for her friend, and she needed to get justice for her friend, and nothing, even though she was that young, and the prosecutor seemed yeah. to kind of, not not the prosecutor, the defense attorney seemed to kind of try to, put in that she had some discrepancies in her stories here and there. It was like she was unshaken. Totally. Yeah. He he did not get anywhere with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm pretty sure that didn't go over. I can imagine the jury must have been just in tears. Yeah. Okay. She was a very smart little girl, so she's doing doing really well. Good, good. Um, so the law enforcement in Orange County, they really kind of hit the ground running as soon as word got out that Samantha had been abducted. Um, that's what our, that's what our perception was in the media, that they were just no holds barred. Let's go get this guy. Was that the inaccurate depiction of your experience with law enforcement? Because the reason I'm asking, because a lot of times, not the a lot of children get the same sort of attention to their case. You're right. You are absolutely right. And in all of the years, and I've come to know a lot of surviving parents of horrible crimes like this, um, I have never met a victim of crime uh, who was treated as well as we were. Um, from Truly throughout the entire ordeal, from the very night that she was taken all the way through the criminal justice process. Um, we were, we were treated exceptionally well. And I, you know, there's no rhyme or reason for it, really. Um, I, 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 at the time, I didn't realize, you know, that I, I was lucky. Uh, it just seemed like people were being, it, it seemed like common decency, you know? Like, right. this horrible thing had happened, and people were bending over backwards to do what they could, not just um, to make comfort us, but to find her and, you know, the... the, the level of, of professionalism and compassion that we were shown was extraordinary. Um, they, they, the response time was very short. From the time my mom called 911, um, the sheriff's department was at the door within five minutes, um, and my mom said as they were talking, helicopters appeared. So they, they were very swift to get into action. Um, and, and they did everything they could. You know, the Orange County Sheriff's Department went above and beyond and called in the reserve deputies, but also officers from other police departments volunteered. So the, the manhunt was enormous, um, and they, they really did put all of their resources into, into trying to bring them back. That's good. Good to hear that. Um, yeah. So in regards to the, um, the services at the Crystal Cathedral, what was that experience like for you? I mean, like... Surreal. The... <laughs> In a word, surreal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, worked know, so... in, I worked over in that area for about four years, and I drove by there every single day. Just an amazing-looking wow. building. And it just to... I can't imagine what that feeling was like for you. I wanted you to try to describe that for me. And would, would oh. you... Did you... Was that something you appreciated in the moment? Would you have rather been just by yourself? Like, how do you... No, so what, what happened was um, I, I... The, the sheriffs were very kind and, you know, asked 
me what I, what kind of service I wanted, and I did want a private service, and we did one. Um, but I also felt like we had already received like thousands and thousands of letters and cards, and there was a vigil outside of in, in the courtyard of our condo community. There was a vigil out there for two whole weeks. They had to shut it down eventually um, because people were not going to stop coming. It was um, just. It was really a beautiful outpouring, and I felt like so many people had been touched by Samantha's murder that I I wanted to give those people who cared an opportunity to grieve um, and to feel a part of the mourning, because to me, when a child is taken like that, it should be be seen as, as a crime against our entire society. So unacceptable, and um, I, you know, the silver lining I think was in fact the fact that it really did bring a community together, and I was very moved by it. It helped me more than I could possibly express. It gave me hope when I had the right to lose all faith in humanity. It was the outpouring of, some, of love from tens of thousands of strangers that made me think that we could do something positive in her in her memory. Um, so we actually started the Joyful Child Foundation three months after Samantha's abduction. We were incorporated. Right. Um, I was going to ask about that. I was going to uh, ask, like, yeah. like this was something that you immediately said, I need to do this. I, it, almost. Yeah, almost immediately. It was within probably a week. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, and I, I, I again, I, I really owe it to the people who shared their hearts with us because that's why I felt like we had a chance. You know, I was only 27 years old and I felt like I might just be young enough to, to be able to make an impact in this lifetime um, that honors Samantha and all of our child victims. Um, and I called it the Joyful Child Foundation because to me that's what we're protecting. We're right. protecting so- the, the right of every child to be joyful. This is what you do then. You, your life was not on this trajectory when this happened. What were you planning on doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was the location accountant at Airbnb. Um, <laughs> so originally, it was Arco in Southern California, but BP um, had just bought the company when I started there. And uh, I, yeah, I was an accountant. I built jet fuel for the airport <laughs> um, for, for BP. Yeah. Wow. That so was a very different life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So um, tell me more about. And, can you tell me more about um, the Joyful Child Foundation? Like what, what you what you guys do? Describe everything that you do for me. <laughs> well, we have what we call the Brave Program. So the Joyful Child, I mean, part of the, the the notion is that we want to do everything we can to protect the joy of every child. And the way that I approach that is kind of threefold. And I learned this from law enforcement. I, I remember learning that in law enforcement, there's a crime triangle, and they say that in order for a crime to take place, all three legs of the triangle have to be there. You have to have the opportunity, the victim, and the perpetrator, and if one of those things doesn't happen, you don't have a crime, and so that's our approach to preventing these crimes, is to eliminate the opportunity by educating parents about um, what they can do to better protect their children, particularly from predatory crimes, so recognizing potentially problematic behavior. Um, and how to intervene and how to talk with your children without scaring them, how to teach them and empower them to be safe instead of lecturing them, if you will, or just giving them rules. And we address the victim directly by empowering children, not just with um, the, the knowledge of what to do, but actually practicing skills to get away. And it really is a partnership between the parents and the children to come up with their own safety plan so that it's not about fear, it's about, well, if this happens, this is what I would do. And if you think about it, you know, most children, if you ask, what's gonna, what, what would you do if, if your house got on fire, they'd say they'd, they'd, you know, do a low crawl out the door, or if they caught on fire, they'd stop, drop, and roll. But if you ask them what they would do if somebody tried to grab them, they, ha- they have no idea. And my goal is for every child to have a plan that somebody comes into the house who's not supposed to be there, or something, you know, whatever the situation is, that we're teaching them how to think critically about their own safety. There are things that kids can do to keep them safe. And the last thing in the world I want for Samantha's legacy is for children to be fearful. 
Um, I want children to be joyful <laughs> and know how to safely navigate their world. Um, and then we deal with the offender through the legislative advocacy. So that's the, that's the hard part. That's the, the infuriating part. The rest is really quite joyful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what, what we do is we, we call them the BRAVE programs uh, or the BRAVE initiatives. And the idea is that we're uniting communities in child protection. And we do that through... Um, Brave programs for children. We have a brave curriculum, and that's really my goal. I think the only way we're going to get safety education to every child in America is through our schools. And so we develop 10 lessons that can be easily incorporated throughout the school year in any order. Um, and it's very plug and play. So teachers, you know, when they have 15 minutes before lunch, they can do a quick lesson from Brave and teach their students something about being safe. And then um, during the PE portion of the day, they can practice some physical defense skills. So somebody did try to take them. They have some, some skills to make them let go. And, um, and then for our adults, we train volunteers to do parent presentations. So we do a lot of PTA meetings. Um, but we also have special partnerships with organizations that serve um, people in transitional housing. So um, homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, and um, low-income community family resource centers, and we have volunteers who go in there and do our parent education as well as kind of a, a brave workshop, um, so a short, shorter version of the curriculum, just so that we can give those kids who are undoubtedly exposed to more um, than your typical child, we want them to have all the skills we can give them um, to be safe. That's, in a nutshell, that's what we do. Perfect. Can you give me an example of like what you might teach a five-year-old that he or she might be able to do in order to fend off a potential abductor? Sure. Um, you know, I think before I do, the, the most important thing for adults to understand is that 90% of crimes against children are perpetrated by somebody the family knows and trusts. Okay. So, so what happened to Samantha is truly on the most extreme end of the spectrum of these crimes. Um, it, it really is. Uh, but before the man who killed my daughter did that, he had already been accused of multiple counts of continuous child sexual abuse against three other girls. Um, he, he was acquitted about one year before he took Samantha. So, and it was his fiance's daughter, her cousin, his roommate's daughter, and another daughter of a, a friend of or his brother. And are these brother. people that uh, were these are people that lived in your complex? No, no, they lived in another county. Okay. I, I thought I read yeah. somewhere that his, this person's ex, somebody lived in the vicinity of yes. where you and Samantha live, lived. Yes, so his primary, his primary victim was his fiance's daughter, and her dad lived in our complex. Okay. So, okay. so um, Samantha's killer knew how to drive around and find you know, his way in and out of our complex, because he had brought her to see her dad on multiple occasions. So um, we suspect that he had come for her that day and saw that they had just moved out about a month and a half before. And um, he drove around one other time. And in that five minutes, Samantha and Sarah had gone out to fight. He grabbed them. Right. Um, that's... I can't even like wrap my head around that. Okay. Okay. I want to um, go back to the foundation for a minute, and the laws the in California um, is has there been any changes in legislation that have been enacted or affected by Samantha's abduction and subsequent murder? Well, three days after Samantha's uh, murder, the governor of California at the time that was Gray Davis, um, he, he actually called me and um, you know, offered his condolences and told me that in that moment he was signing the Amber Alert into emergency effect. It had already been passed in the, by the state assembly, um, but he had not yet signed the bill. And so um, three days after Samantha was taken, he signed that law. And two weeks later, the first two girls were rescued as a direct result of the Amber Alert in the state. Um, and, and one of them is a dear friend of mine now. <laughs> um, but okay. they, they were, um, which, yeah, they were. Which two girls, were those them. those two, um, two friends, those teenagers that were abducted together? They, yes, exactly. Yes. Cameron and Jackie. Yes, um, I remember those. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it was very um, it was horrifying what happened to them, but um, their recovery was a direct result of somebody testing the Amber Alert. And and I mean that year alone, ninety six children were recovered because of the Amber Alert. So um, that was the first law that I think she had a major impact on. She thought the names in the Animal Child Protection and Safety Act of two thousand six, um, which created the National Sex Offender Registry. Um, and the largest kind of bill on child safety um, ever passed in the country. Um, the I helped advocate for Jessica's law in California uh, and Chelsea's law, um, and we worked on. But in terms of advocacy, I you know I'm relatively fairly active. I was just up in Sacramento last week um, opposing uh, Senate Bill 421, which is uh, designed to Retier the sex offender registry in California, um, and I'm very upset about it because it it goes too far. There is a need to create a tiered registry so that people who commit, um, you know, nonviolent misdemeanors, that there is a process by which they can eventually come off of the registry. I'm not opposed to that, um, but the way that this bill is written, it will make it possible for almost all sex offenders to get off of the registry after 20 years. Um, and just immediately, fifty five thousand offenders will be eligible to be removed. Um, and I think that is um, um, contrary um, to what the public wants and contrary to public safety. Right. And what would be the point? Save money. Um, you know, the argument in favor of it is that there are people on the registry who committed their crimes over 30 years ago, um, and that they were, you know, nonviolent crimes. Maybe they were, um, there's they're, some, one of the things that Senator Weiner was saying, who, who wrote the bill, um, was explaining that, you know, there's a, a large gay population um, in his constituency, and many of them, you know, in their youth, when it was so uncomfortable and not socially acceptable, um, they would get arrested for, you know, having sex in public places because they couldn't go anywhere else as a gay couple. Um, and so he, he, part of his motivation is to make it so that all those people are removed. And I am not opposed to that, but the, but the issue is that in the process of removing them, the bill is worded so broadly that it also removes lots of people who are actually potentially dangerous offenders. Um, so they talk about the three tiers, and the second tier is serious and violent offenders. And this bill allows all of them to uh, apply to be removed from both the public registry and law enforcement's registry after 20 years. Right. So and, um, in that vein... Know, we passed Megan's law for a reason. We, we, right. I think most people believe they have a right to know if there's a sex offender who next door or, you know, wants to take their daughter on a date or them on a date or, you know, tutor them, whatever. We, mm-hmm. we like having a public registration. <laughs> right, right. So in that same vein, I mean, for the the person that did this to Samantha, would it have made mm-hmm. it any kind of difference if he had been, say, convicted and on a registry? Do you think that there yeah, would have been so some, I- something that would have stopped him or inhibited him from continuing on? Well, had he been convicted, he would have been in jail. Um, Samantha would be alive. There's no no question. So um, the whether or not the way the registry would have impacted him uh, after that, um, you know, child molestation generally does not get a whole lot of jail time. Um, so the registry does serve as kind of a continual punishment. Um, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is really about the public having a right to know um, if somebody has prior offenses. Um, so I, I think the important thing to understand is that when we talk about risk assessments um, of sex offenders, if Samantha's killer had been convicted, when he got released, he would have been considered, according to the static 99R, if they refer to it. If he had answered those questions, it's just an easy, you know, the offender just fills it out, answers those questions. Um, so you have to trust that they're telling the truth, which in and of itself I have a huge problem with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but knowing what I know about him, had he filled that questionnaire out, he would have been considered a low-risk offender. Right. Because he's never taken and responsibility for anything. Right. Well, and, 
and because the, the questions are things like, are you dating anybody? Does, do you have family around you? Do, you know, they want to know if you have the supports in place to foster you um, out of criminal behavior. But unfortunately, sex offending is not typical criminal behavior. It's from, from most, uh, or at least many offenders, it is a compulsion. Um, they feel driven to do these things. It's not, you know, because they're in a game or something. Um, so it, it, it does differ from other criminal Right, right. That's yeah. When you're in a gang, they ask you. You have to stay away from the streets. You have to stay away from other gang members, and you have right. to report that and, and information. You sometimes have to actually, yeah, commit crime. Yeah, you're being right. propelled by a different reason. But um, sex offending for many is more like an addiction, and so even right after they get out, very often they're picked up for child pornography or you know hanging out at a park just just because. They are compelled to pray. Right. Okay. Well, the last thing I wanted um, to talk about was where we can find you online, some like your website, and are you on social media, and where, if anybody wants more information, where they can contact you. Thank you. Well, the, the very best place to learn about the Joyful Child Foundation and, and what I'm doing, we link to our Facebook page, our Twitter, all of that is, is linked on our on our website, which is thejoyfulchild.org, um, and we have an event coming up on September 30th. The Joyful Feast is our annual gala, and tickets just went off sale. Um, early bird tickets, um, ticket prices uh, expire on July 31st, so hopefully folks will have a chance to hear this and, and buy their tickets while the discounted price is still valid. Um, but we're also planning our very first brave race for January 20th, 2018, so I'm super excited about it doing a 5K and um, getting our families out there. There's going to be a 1K fun run for the children as well. So that should be a a really fun event. Um, I'm also going to start a blog, um, so that'll be linked off of our website. But you can look at our calendar and see upcoming programs and um, register for them directly from our website, so joyfulchild.org. I'd like to thank you all for listening to this episode of California Dreaming. I'd also like to extend my deepest gratitude to Erin Runyon for taking the time to speak with me this week about her daughter and the Joyful Child Foundation. If you would like to read more about Samantha or the foundation, please visit their website at www.thejoyfulchild.org. I think I speak for many of us when I say that despite the fact that 15 years has now passed since Samantha was so brutally taken from this world, that she continues to touch our lives and her memory continues to live on. And if anyone who's listened has never heard of Samantha prior to this episode, I hope her story continues to resonate with you and your families so her memory can continue to touch lives and hopefully make a small difference in helping and saving children from becoming victims. California Dreaming is establishing a Patreon page for this and future stories that move us towards wanting to make a small difference. For the remainder of the month of July and all of August, 100% of the proceeds of California Dreaming's Patreon will be donated to the Joyful Child Foundation. Whenever a story comes our way, it will continue to be our goal to not only tell the story, but to give back, even if it is in a small way. I deeply appreciate any contributions, no matter how big or small, made through our Patreon for the Joyful Child Foundation. I'd also like to take this time to give some shout-outs for some iTunes reviews. Thank you to One Plunk, Denver, Colorado Reviewer, Nullity, Mo Lunger, JKL5876, Lacey U28, Charlie Girl Says, and MYMYK. Also, the first round of show stickers went out in the mail this week, so if you received yours, I'd really love it if you'd post pictures on social media or you stuck them all on the California Dreaming discussion page, on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, or on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. I'm still sending them out, so you're not too late. Email me your mailing information at CaliforniaPod at Yahoo.com, and I'll make sure to get those out to you. That's all for this week. 
I am going to try to throw together a mini episode that's kind of a side story to this week's episode, so you can look forward to that sometime early this upcoming week. And until next time, sweet dreams. And in memory of Samantha Runyon, be brave.